0: So when I was about eight or nine years old, I remember reading about how Eskimo uh, hunters would actually um, be able to hunt a wolf that would be loose in the area where they would live. And and this is how they would do it, is it was a a technique that they use. And you you think, okay, what would they do? They go out there and and stalk the predator of the wolf. No, that's not actually what they do. Rather simple procedure. How many of you know where I'm going with this, have heard how they do this? Anybody? I'm just curious fascinating to me. What they would do is they would take a sharp blade, a knife, and, and in the, the coldness of Alaska and the winters up there, what they do is they would take that knife and in animal blood, they would uh, dip the knife in blood and then let it freeze. And then they dip the knife in blood and let it freeze. And they dip the knife in blood and let it freeze over and over again until a, a a thick layer of frozen blood would develop around this knife. And then they'd find a way to, to mount this knife blade-side up on the ground. And then they'd wait. And it generally didn't take long because a wolf could, could smell the blood in the air and, and would find that, that, that source of, of food. And, and what would happen is the wolf would start to lick the blood. And it would taste good to him. And as he'd lick it, it would, it would taste better and better and better. And so much so that as he was licking it, because it's frozen blood, his tongue would actually grow numb over time. And in those moments that would pass, that the numbness of his tongue would, would lead him to not even realize that the blood that he was now licking was his own because he would got to the blade and he'd actually bleed to death right in that spot. I remember as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old kid learning about that and that imagery of that, like that is really gross (laughs) and yet very profound because I I think it can teach us something about what can happen also to people when we grow numb to reality. When, when uh, the culture and our satiated need for blood or, or power or strength or sexuality or, or, or money and greed and, and strength, when our, our appetites grow and, and we go, grow numb within the culture to the reality of how destructive it is, is it possible that a culture can be bleeding to death and not even know it? Well, that preaches pretty well today. Because we live in that kind of culture right now. And in that culture of, of, of an increasing appetite for sexuality and, and, and an increasing need for greed and power and and the atrocities that surround us every day. Where is our voice as God's people? You know, there's a strong myth out there, and it, it's our title for today: the myth that Christians are. Are too intolerant, and really, what's understood there is that Christians are always pointing out what's wrong. That's really the understanding there. And it's interesting if you do kind of a sociological study of the word tolerance is that meaning of that word has changed over the decades. What it used to mean was tolerance of of religion really meant that that all religions, no matter how quirky or goofy, would be accepted and tolerated within our society. And, And that's good news because it allows us to practice our faith freely. That's one of the great things of living where we live is that tolerance, religious tolerance. But what's happened is, It's gone from uh, tolerance and, and words of allowing things that we don't necessarily agree with to exist. It's gone to the other extreme of saying tolerance is total acceptance of everything. In other words, to be tolerant or not be tolerant is to be politically incorrect. That you must tolerate, in other words, fully accept and embrace all beliefs, all desires, all backgrounds of people, no matter what. Because, after all, if they're born with it, you better tolerate it. Interesting, that argument, I'll just throw this out today. Just because we're born with something doesn't mean it's okay. We don't treat cancer that way. Well, they had a propensity because they had genetic uh, background in their family of cancer, so we're not going to treat it because they're born with it, therefore it's okay. Or, or we would not treat alcoholism and say, well, alcoholism, oh, you got that, that. They've even proved this, understand, like there's an alcoholic gene. And we don't approach that and say, well, you were born with that, therefore go and drink and kill yourself with it. That's fine. We don't approach life that way. And the reality is everyone is born with a propensity for sin because it's who we are in our sinful condition being born in this world. And meanwhile, the thirst for blood and the numbness of our culture has made us grow increasingly out of touch. And meanwhile, when the church speaks and maybe suggests that maybe to truly love and to be honest and to be truthful Well, it comes off as being intolerant. That's what we get labeled. Now, there's a problem with this a little bit today is this isn't completely a myth. You know, we've looked at different myths over the last several weeks, and and we busted a lot of myths. There is a portion and a piece to this that actually is very plausible that Christians are considered today intolerant. And part of that rests on us. Part of that rests on the interpretation of the world. You know, Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 5, we read these words just a moment ago. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. That's quite a statement. You are the salt of the earth. Now, there's something about the ministry of Jesus that we can observe. And, and you know, you think of Jesus who was known as the, the, the friend of sinners, the one who would speak and, and crowds were drawn to him, people who were the rejected of society, people who were on the outside of the church. They were drawn to Jesus. There was something magnetic about him. And Jesus says to us, his followers, that you are the salt of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Maybe you've studied this along the way. I, I, was, I went back to it this week. I was just fascinated, the, the history and, and that culture which salt would have been understood for. And, and um, Roman soldiers were often paid by, by salt. In fact, if you've ever heard the expression, he's not worth his salt, that's where that comes from. Is they, they often were paid in salt. Um, and, and, and salt had several different characteristics. It, it, it had a, a preserving quality to it, that it would be used in, in preserving foods. Um, even in the Old Testament, when, when God tells his people to uh, bring forward the grain offerings, and he says, and season them with salt as a preservative, it was used in that kind of way. And certainly, the, the way we're also familiar with it is it, it brings seasoning to something that's bland, right? Right? Um, Even though we live in a day and age where we're being told to cut back on salt, right? Um, There you go. Culture is is growing numb to what tastes good. I'm kidding. Um, But but salt. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. What's that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that we repel people by simply being followers of Jesus. You know, I think sometimes we, we find that the church actually repels people away and what's happened then? I, I remember reading this um, this last summer. Um, there was this, this woman, she had grown up in the church. All of her friends were at her church and kind of in the holy huddle. She didn't know any people that were not part of the church. And, and she realized in as she was seeking a a new profession and a career, she wanted to go off and become a a psychiatrist and and went off to school and went to a public university and all of the schools she'd gone to previously were all Christian and and she went to this this public university and she was taking classes and and one of the assignments in one of the classes was to go and spend time with people that you're afraid of and then write a, a paper about that experience. To grow in a greater understanding of people you're afraid of. And and, and for her, um, she decided in, in her experience she was going to go spend time um, with those who who profess to be gay. And, and she'd spent time in that. And she learned a lot through that. And, and, and what where the story goes is when they came back and were giving their reports in the classroom, what completely surprised her was that as report after report came forward and different classmates were sharing. Who they spent time with, the great majority of the class spent time with Christians. Because the majority of the people in the room were frightened by Christians. And she started to sink in her seat as she'd hear report after report of how their experiences affirmed their fear. That Christians were judgmental, that Christians weren't loving, that Christians were hypocritical, that Christians were just as sinful as everybody else, and, and were pointing fingers at everyone. And it was an, a wake-up call to her of what has happened to us. You know, as our culture grows numb around us, what has happened to us? Have we become known as the complainers? Have we become known as the judgmental group? Have we become known as the ones who uh, really are, are hypocrites who walk around pointing out what's wrong with everything? Because the issue with this, you might say, well, yeah, isn't that our calling? And see, that's a problem because our Savior has actually taught us a very different path that isn't based in politics and isn't based on getting our country back because then God is going to have his way here. Folks, the passing of laws do not change hearts. And we just need to calm down on that one a little bit. It doesn't mean we don't elect godly people. That's not at all what I'm saying. But the answer to God turning our world around is not going to happen via politics. It's going to happen by relationship. It's going to happen as individual Christians follow through with being the church and and proclaiming God's love and God's word in its truth and in its purity. Now, Jesus says if that salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Could it be said maybe that our church today has lost its saltiness via our witness? We get to, to Peter, and when Peter proclaims that, that verse, we read just a little bit ago when he says, you know, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have and do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Sometimes that's hard to hold that line, especially in a, a culture that is increasingly hostile toward our, our, our teaching and our belief. But our God invites us not to get hostile in return but rather to be calm, to be gentle, and to be respectful in how we address truth and love in our world today. I'll put this in a different context for you today too. You know, I, I, just an image for you. If, you, um, if you've ever been on, were any of you on a canoe this summer? Anybody spend time on one or a kayak? Raise your hand. Kayak or canoe. Just a few hands going up. Let me just ask you, what happens if you paddle just on one side of the kayak or the canoe? I'm hearing somebody say, you go around in circles, don't you? You don't go anywhere. And the truth is that if you go on the other side of the kayak and you just paddle there, you're going to go around in circles. And what we find in God's word, and in Latin, these two words, I love this, is veritas and caritas. Um, you know, if a sermon, if you want to sound smart, use like a Latin or a Greek word, and everybody's like, ooh, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. But, you know, veritas and caritas, really two biblical uh, really deep words that mean truth and love when it comes to how we profess our faith. We have truth and we've explored that over these, these weeks of summer. And if you haven't heard some of these messages in, in terms of the reliability of, of the Bible and, and the, the, the relational value of being relative or what's um, relevant to culture, Scripture is very relevant because it's very reliable, and we've explored that together. We've looked at how Scripture backs itself up, that it is real, it is true. We can trust it. We can know it. And Jesus' words in the gospel today that not one little pen mark will change. That he's come not to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it, and that the Scriptures, they don't change, just as he is the Word made flesh does not change. We don't come to a culture and and say, well, God didn't really mean those words. No, that's not how we approach truth. But rather we find that God has given us truth. And sometimes that truth, like salt on a wound, it hurts. But it has a preserving healing quality to it. Because that truth, like paddling on one side of the canoe, is really important to moving forward. It is. It's sharing the truth of what God has to say even when it stings. But just as important as our Savior teaches us is to do so and paddle on this side of the boat in love, in grace, and in mercy. That If we're just paddling on truth and pointing out what's wrong with everything and that's all going to hell, well, guess what? We're not going to have a very good hearing in our culture. And it's no wonder we get seen and, and pegged as intolerant and we lose our voice. Because the message in its fullness is not only truth or law, but it's also gospel. And how much more importantly, the gospel, that it would prevail. The good news that we are loved in spite of ourselves. That God has died for us and risen again. And that that Savior died for sinful people like every one of us. Because we're all hypocrites. We all fall short. We're all in the same boat in terms of falling short of the glory of God. And God in His amazing love has rescued us and rescues the people around us. That's why Peter would say, you know, when you have an opportunity to share the hope that you have, do it with gentleness and respect, not in judgment. What can often happen in churches is we can have those holy huddles, and I want to encourage you more and more develop relationships with people you know don't know the Lord intentionally, not as a project, not as an assignment for a class, but rather to get to know people who struggle and battle and understand where their pain is and to be able to witness to them right where they are, relationally. It's a calling our Savior gives us today and it's a joy to be on the front lines of being His church more and more. Not to isolate ourselves, but as Jesus says it, you know, to, to be in the world, but not be of the world. Our calling in Christ as forgiven people in Jesus. Let's pray and may He lead us in that. Lord God, we are surrounded more and more in a culture that has grown numb to the truth of your word. And the challenges of, of walking as, as a child of God, as a Christian, and, and the temptations to be drawn into it and grow numb ourselves is so powerful. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would not fall into the tolerance uh, definition of our world today, but, Lord, rather that as as people of truth and people of love, you would continue to realign our minds and our hearts and to realize your word has been given to us because you truly do love us. You desire to rescue us from, from bleeding to, to death eternally as well as, Lord, in our minds, hearts, and souls. Lord, to uh, bring us back to reality and help us to have a prophetic voice in our culture today as we speak your truth and we speak words of your love And may you reclaim that saltiness in our lives again. Lord, you've told us again and again that this is impossible in and of ourselves. And that's where we rely on your Holy Spirit. That's why we rely on your strength to do what only you can do. But may we be willing participants as you have your way in each of us to relationally connect with people around us, even people that we have a hard time understanding and we have a great disagreement with. Lord, that doesn't mean we push them away. Not at all. But may we invite them closer as you did with those who are far from God and remind them that you have come near, near to where they are today. Lord, bless us with that kind of voice. Bless us as that kind of church relationally to connect others with you as we have first been connected through, through your calling. We pray, Jesus, as you live now and always. Amen. Amen.